Amen. All right, back to Acts. We're going to skip ahead a little bit here in Acts, up to Acts chapter 6. We'll go back and catch Acts chapter 5 at another point. This was important for what God, I believe, is doing with our men. And we're going to study something, and I guess I need to put this in the category. I think I put it in your outline, the science of stuff. Right? Science is more than just biology and chemistry. Science is the study of anything. It's, it's the systematic gathering of information about anything. So you're a scientist in some category. You may not wear a white coat. You may not be into biology and stare into little devices. But you're a scientist. You study stuff. There's things in your life that you are an authority on. There's things that, take, that, that you are interested in and you do the homework on. And, and you could give me a report on it right now if I ask you about it. Right? I mean, we all... We're all scientists. We live with scientists. I, I get a variety of reports from the scientists that I live with. I, I have a group of scientists that keep me updated on the, the world of sports, everything happening in sports. I don't ever have to, I don't, as a matter of fact, I don't ever even watch the sports anymore. I don't need to. I mean, I have living broadcasters that live with me, so I know who just lost a contract, got a contract, how many points somebody scored last night. It's there. Uh, I, I have cooking scientists that I live with. I, I have musical scientists that I live with. And, and so there's a study. There's a gathering of information going on. And that's right. That's how we should be. God's called us to be good at stuff and to pursue things and to know things with our lives. Well, Acts is sort of a science class on the church. That's what it is. It's a science class on the church. And so today, as we read Acts chapter 6, just seven verses out of Acts chapter 6, we're going to turn to the chapter on the scientific study of the church, and we're going to learn today about growing pains. In the body of Christ, there's something called growing pains. Things grow. Things change when they grow. Churches change when they grow. The New Testament church changed when it grew. And it didn't take long for those changes and the complexities of what the church was becoming to start getting felt in the church. And little disruptions began to take place and disappointments and complaining. Can you imagine people? I mean, these people complained. They did. I know we don't do that, but they did that. They complained. Well, that's what comes with complexity. What was just, I don't know, we don't have a clear timeline here, but maybe just a few months earlier was a gathering of all 120 of them in an upper room. And then God had an agenda. And we are pretty clear that the 120 didn't understand the agenda, so they really didn't know what they were getting themselves into fully. But the power of God shows up by the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2, and God births his church, and, and just a few months later, that gathering of 120 has turned into thousands. I'd say conservatively, you're well over 10,000 people. Some commentators think 20,000 people are in the church in Jerusalem. How many of you know that that created some complexity in the church? I mean, we're we're complex and we're not anywhere near 10 or 20,000 people that all of a sudden are new believers coming into new relationships, not sure how to walk out any of this with all kinds of needs in their lives. And people are caring for them. And and there's breakdowns in the church. Stuff's not going right. It's a new day. It used to be a day where there was a small gathering of people. And that 120, I think, represented these folks who traveled with Jesus. Remember, there was a gathering of 70 that Jesus sent out. There was a a definable group of people that hung out with Jesus and the apostles, and suddenly that group who you probably had a meal with Peter or or John or James on a regular basis, you probably hung out and talked with those guys all the time, and suddenly there's 10,000 people. Guess who's not going to be having a meal with Peter and James and John anytime soon? Some folks have gotten very used to how the church felt. And it's different. And some of you guys have been around this church or you've been in other churches long enough to know that churches don't always feel the same. This church doesn't feel the same. I was in this church in the 80s when there were 60 people here. I guess you can just take my word for it that it doesn't feel the same right now. And, and well, yeah, that, that could be, I mean, I could be a person who hated the idea that we're just 60 people for goodness sake. 
And so when growth comes along, I can love that idea. Or I can be a person who loved the fact that we were 60 people, and then when growth comes along, I hate that idea. And so you see where complaints get birthed? Complaints get birthed out of our own perspective on things. But here's the reality. God is doing something here. God didn't ask anybody for their opinion. He didn't take a poll, say, how big would you like the church to be? There was none of that going on. God was doing something here. And the church changed, and the people needed to learn to change with it. Leadership needed to learn to change and address some things. And so that's what we're going to bump into here. I just... There's so much in this passage, we could really spend a few weeks here. I'm just going to highlight what's in the passage, and I'm only going to hit a couple of points, and we'll just trust the Lord is leading us where he wants us to go. But here's a range of very important topics I put contained in this passage. One, the observation of meaningful mercy ministries and healthy church care. You looked at this church, they had some very meaningful mercy ministry going on between the needs of people in the church and some very healthy care for one another taking place. Then you're going to read in the passage about the strains of diversity that took place as the church welcomed more and more people that were different and the challenges of walking as one when we're different. The normalcy and carefulness needed that we don't tear down our own house. The church had potential at this point to divide, to find identity within itself part identifying here, part identifying there. Complaints were beginning to take place. Certainly gossip was occurring. And there was the opportunity for the people of God to tear down what God was doing in their lives. Well, there's a a need here as we see through the apostles for pastors to have a restrained focus and for other men to take up responsibility for the life of the church. We'll see that in this passage. And then we'll see the increase in the church. This is a church that's growing and increasing. It involves divine and human contribution. Without question, the church is increasing because of what God is doing. But without question, God requires that man do some things in this. So we can't choose which one of those we want to put the emphasis on. The Bible doesn't. So that's what we find here. Let's read Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word, the word of God, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These... They set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You hear this, and the word of God increased. I think that's indicative that there came a moment in the life of the church where there was a bit, I'm going to call it a bit of a bottleneck. There was, there was a flow of God. There was ministry taking place. There were people involved in leading those ministries. And suddenly, what God was doing got too big for the structure that existed. And, and you got this bottleneck thing happening. And they address the bottleneck. And God gives wisdom. And men step forward. And the next thing you know, and the word of God continued. And it's almost like the bottleneck opened back up. And the ministry began to take place again the way in which God desired it to. But let's, let's visit a few thoughts here. There's, oh man, there's just so much good education here about what's normal in the life of the church. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists and arose against the Hebrews, their widows, because they were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, well, before we jump into the, the little complaint problem going on here in the midst of the church, 
the complaint arises in the midst of some very commendable, healthy, wonderful stuff taking place in this church. If you were, if you were a widow in that day, uh, it, it's not classic sense of the term that we use today. It didn't just mean that your husband was dead. It, it meant that you were husbandless. It meant that you had a husband, you were husbandless. So more than likely it was, it was due to death. But it also could have been due to abandonment. Uh, it could have been other conditions that drove you to be a husbandless woman. Living in a day when there wasn't a lot of economy available for you as a husbandless woman to make your way and to make a living in that day. The industry of most women was associated with their family and their household. But this is a woman who doesn't have a family and a household. She doesn't have a husband who can create opportunities for her to help with the commerce needed inside the home. What does that woman do? She, she can't make her way out there and crank up her own business. This is not America. Don't read the Bible like it's America. This is, this is someone who's not going to be able to care for themselves. And so who steps in to do that? The church. The church steps in, identifies those widows, and already here, just a few months old, this community has taken up the need. And it was a little bit of an exorbitant need in Jerusalem because many of the, of the Jews would return to Jerusalem kind of in their retiring years and live in Jerusalem. And so you had a higher number of older, pop, older folks there, and the husbands would die off, and you had a large number of widows in Jerusalem. And the church owned responsibility for them. This was an amazingly caring community. I mean, if we just revisit what's taken us here, what's, what's normal? If you just took a snapshot or you took a little bit of a running observation of the church from Acts 2 to Acts 6, what's, what's featured there? And we're going to talk about a church here. You know, do you want to be a part of that church? Do you evaluate that church and see, do I... Do me and my family, do we want to participate and attend that church in Jerusalem? Well, today we're kind of taught to ask certain questions. And we might want to know, well, well how big is the church? You know, some of us like big churches, some of us don't like big churches. Now, where do they meet? How often do they meet? Um, what's the children's ministry like? Are they charismatic? I don't know if I want to go to one of those charismatic churches or not. You, know, I mean, you do realize at this point there's no such thing as a non-charismatic church, right? you got, you got a few selections available to you. Pentecost just happened and everybody is Pentecostal. It's just the way it is. That's right. Hallelujah. I'm with you. Um, so we evaluate churches on the basis of stuff that doesn't seem to have made the frontline headlines. Up to this point in this church, what's on the headlines here for these folks? What, what kind of stuff have they been doing up to this point? Well, there's, there's some folks preaching. Uh, there's people getting saved. There's, there's an enormous amount of care going on. This is a church featuring care. Widows are being cared for. People are caring for one another. They're identifying any needs in their midst more than anything else that's been talked about, maybe rivaled by the preaching of the word, is the care of the body. Not a discussion on size, not a discussion on location, not a discussion on children's ministry, and that's fine. Hey, we want to treasure those things. But that's not where the Bible seems to put its foot first. This is a community that knew how to care for each other. And that's been featured several times. Right? I think I wrote this out in your outline. It's a place of mutual sacrifice and support. The sense that we're all in this together. That's a word that's used a lot. We're here for each other. It was loyalty that was not conditioned upon convenience in these laws. What they did was not convenient. This was, this was not a convenient church to be a part of. Can you imagine you're thinking about coming into the church there and you're bumping the Barnabas? Barnabas, tell me about the church that you go to. Well, you know, a bunch of us are just selling all of our property and giving it to each other. Really? Uh, well, you let me know how that works out, pal. <laughs> uh, I'm going to keep attending the church I'm going to over here where we get to keep our stuff. You know, that was, I don't know how that played out. 
Well, the way it played out was for people who really knew in their hearts they wanted that kind of life, that kind of care and loyalty and friendship and sacrifice, it's on display in that church. I think it's part of the reason why the Bible can say over and over again, the Lord kept adding daily to their numbers. It wasn't just because the apostles preached some really amazing, cool messages. It's because of the way they lived. Look in your outline there. All right, remember these verses? Acts 2, verse 44. And all who believed were together. They're all together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As any had need? As any had need. Real needs, but as any had need. I didn't even know you a month ago. And I'm selling Something I've had in my life all these years because you, who I don't hardly even know. What's your name again? I'm selling stuff for you. That's what they're doing. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right, here's the atmosphere of fruitfulness. This is a fruitful church. It would be a mistake. It would be biblically a misuse to say they're a fruitful church only because the apostles could just blow the roof off with their preaching. Well, you know, if that was the case, that's, what, that's all that would be talked about here. And that does get talked about here. But what gets featured over and over and over again is they were all together. They were a thriving family of people who cared for one another. They gathered in big corporate settings in the temple, and then they gathered together in small places in their homes. Hospitality was taking place. Local friendship and connection was occurring in their lives. See, we're not rocket scientists. And if you're in this church wondering, why do y'all do like you do church and you do small groups? Well, that's why we do church. And that's why we do small groups. Not because, oh, somebody came along with this cool idea back in the 70s called cells, cell groups. No, I'm not following some church trend. We're just following what we see in the Bible. To have real relationships, you just can't have meetings just like this. That can't be enough. That's why we can encourage you, please get in a small group. Because what makes for fruitfulness is, is not just, hey, well, I go to that church because I like the way the words preach there. Well, that, that's great. But what made this church fruitful and effective, what made people in awe, what made people sell their stuff was because they actually took up one another's lives and cared for each other. And you know this, and it was true for them too. That's anything but convenient and easy. It's just not. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. We looked at this verse a couple weeks ago. When they were released, right, they got released from jail, they went to their friends. I like that term, and I'm going to show you what it means. They went to their friends and reported what, they, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together. All right, so when they were released, all right, these are guys getting out of jail. Now, my question for you is, if you just got out of jail, where would you go? Some of y'all admitted a few weeks ago that you had spent some time in jail. So, You'd be best to answer this for the rest of us who don't have any idea what it's like to be released from jail. But who'd be your go-to people? I mean, there's a threatening situation. You just got your life in a crack. Who's your go-to people? This is a lot about what you believe about the community of life you're joined to. For them, their go-to people was the church. That's my family. Those are the people that my life most identifies with. This is a strong term here, this term friends. Now, don't be mistaken here, although it it is called this for a reason. It is the Greek word idios. I know where you're going with this. (laughs) And I wish I could tell you the words weren't related, but they are. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, the Bible's calling you to have friends who are idiots. All right, that's just the best I can do with this word. It's just true. Uh, Well, you know. That's not how this form of the Greek word is used. But it's, see, it's got this peculiarity in it. See, that's the nature of this Greek word is, is it's, it's a peculiar group of people. 
it is an excluded group of people. That's the nature of the word here. That's why idiots, that's why you're an idiot, because you do stuff in a weird, peculiar way. Dude, what are you, an idiot? That's, that's what you're trying to communicate when you say that. Your way is weird, and no one does it like you're, you're by yourself, man. You're an idiot. All right, that's kind of where that word gets its. But the nature of it for this group is this gathering of people was idios. It was, it was this. It, was, it means a word belonging to oneself, not to another. One's own, peculiar, denoting ownership. That of which one is himself the owner, possessor, producer, as my own, your, your own, his own. That's how that word is used in the Greek. It's the, it's the word that describes friends and companions in the Bible. Jesus used it not to describe everyone, to describe those who were with him. His friends. It's the word going to be used later on in the book of Acts when Paul is allowed to have some friends visit him while he's in custody. Right, so this is what the church is described as. There is a sense of ownership taking place in these relationships. The same way in which you would, would introduce somebody. You know, when you walk into, I don't know, you walk into a setting and your family's there with you. Do you, do you feel the need to introduce everybody in the building you walk up to somebody and say, hey, uh, this, is, this is my wife, and this is my son, and, and excuse me, what's your name? And this is Joe, and, and that's the guy who works at the door, and, and this is somebody who came in five minutes before. You don't do that, do you? You walk in and you introduce my family. This is my family. And then when you leave here today, you're going to go on and go do some things with my friends. There's, there's a peculiar association that goes on in our lives. Everyone doesn't sit in our lives the same way. But this word is used to describe the church. This is my church. It's a, it's a place where I have some ownership here. Now that's obvious in their lives, isn't it? Because when a need came up, <clears throat> they weren't just kind of thinking, well, you know, social services will take care of that. Or, you know, there's unemployment for that kind of a thing. Or, you know, and, and I'm not saying that those things aren't beneficial and helpful in people's lives. But, but what if those things don't meet the need? What if those things aren't even available? See, if we own, and we own our families this way, you know, one of our family members gets in trouble, we have a sense of, okay, well, what role do I need to play in that person's life right now? Well, that's the relationship of the church. That's who these people were to each other. That's normal in the church. Acts 4, verse 32, says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is, this is the normal way that becoming a believer revolutionizes your life. Stuff that was one thing in your life and you met Christ becomes something else. Possessions, lifestyle, time and energy, all that was one thing before I knew Christ, but then I came to know Christ and everything got redefined. No one, what does it say? The things that belonged to him was his own. No one claimed stuff that way. Things were sitting in their lives <clears throat> differently. That's what, that's what Christianity does. It revolutionizes who we are, and it touches our relationships. And so question, question for us in this normalcy category, uh, who are these people sitting in this room today to you? Who are they? Are they idios without the T? Idios. <laughs> I know you know some of them are idiots, but are there idios here? Are there, there people that are yours? They belong to you. Are they friends here? Are they family to you? Right. Are they on your team? They are teammates. We are comrades together. We We've got each other's back. Now, I mean, here's the reality. We're not 10,000 or 20,000. 
But we're too big for that to be real for all of us in this room. We're too big. That's why small groups exist. So that when we go to live these realities out, there's actually a place in which we can do it. That we can identify people who very much, they're family. And, and that's what happened. If you haven't been in a small group uh, in the church, well, this is an aspect of the Christian life that you're missing out on. People taking ownership and responsibility for one another. The amazing ways in which small groups have cared for needs in people's lives. Showing up with, with food when there's sickness or uh, somebody's got a, an issue going on in their life. Helping people pack up and move. Being available for childcare when there's a crisis. Visiting people in the hospital. Treating people like family. If you try and aim that intentionality at this meeting, I guarantee you, you'll never pull it off. And it'll never be meaningful. You're going to have to aim it at a group that's small enough for you to aim at. So it's my plea for you, if, if small groups is not a priority for you, then, then the normal life of the church will remain foreign to you. That's a great concern as a pastor. We sing about concepts, we promote concepts, we don't experience concepts. This is a powerful thing. This church was a great, fruitful, God-increasing church in large extent because of their care for one another was prolific and effective. Right, we bump into this issue in this passage. <clears throat> there were some strains of diversity taking place here. People who normally found reasons to avoid each other are suddenly thrust into the same setting together. There were the Hellenist Jews. These were the Greek-speaking, almost culturally Greek Jews, and the purists the Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jews. Now, you know, in this culture, remember, you've got a, an aspect of the Israel's, Israelites' life, this Jewish lifestyle that looks on the Gentile world with disdain, with a sense of, you will pollute us. You are impure. Your ideas and your practices and the influence of paganism, that's all about your culture. You know, it's all to be avoided. And so they didn't have a sense of light and in the midst of the world and salt in the midst of uh, a fallen world. They lost a bit of that. So there was this sense that we don't want to be polluted by that, by those ideas, by those ways. And into the church comes people who are Jews. They believe in the God of Judaism. They're Jewish. But they, they dress more like the Gentile world and they speak the Gentile language. They're Greek-speaking Jews. And they're in the church with us. And they're relating to us. They're leading children's ministry. <laughs> I don't know if they had children's ministry, so that could be a lie. But anyway, just a few months ago, these people had an us and them mentality. They were them and we're us. And now all of a sudden, they're part of something together. And there's a strain here because I noticed that the purest people are making sure that the other purest Christian people are getting their distribution. There's no need going overlooked there, but huh, I'm noticing some of my people who speak Greek and dress like Gentiles, huh, I notice on a regular basis they're not getting served correctly. What's up with that? And then we start talking and complaining and sharing with each other and accusing and looking into the heart of some other person and figuring out why it is that they do that based on all the information and my bad experiences from somewhere else and I'm bringing all that to the moment right here. The strain of diversity. Derek Thomas says, in what was designed to be an expression of love and tenderness to the underprivileged and dependent, signs of suspicion emerged which grew into full-blown resentment and accusation. It is not without significance that the complaint by the Hellenists was not primarily about food at all. It was against the Hebrews, those people. The conflict had become sectarian and tribal in nature, disclosing something far more significant than food distribution. Racial and ethnic tensions were the undercurrent that rocked the very foundations of the new community in Jesus Christ. Diversity, the fact that we're not all the same. We didn't grow up with the same ideas. We don't have the same skin color. We don't have the same value system. 
We don't laugh at the same jokes. And all of a sudden, we're all in this together. Listen, that's, that's still true today, isn't it? It's true then. They had problems. Don't read the New Testament church and think, oh, they had it all together. Oh, if we were just like the New Testament church. Okay, if we were just like them, we'd be complaining and talking about each other. Well, apparently we are just like them in some ways. <laughs> so something's happened to us when we came into Christ that redefined our lives in such an enormous way that it became the thing that cast the shadow on everything else about us. It became the dominant, defining element of anybody who calls themselves a Christian. More so than anything else about you, including your name, your race, your money, anything else about you. Something redefined you as a human being when you became saved. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Unity is the result of one commanding and defining reality that overshadows all other things that seek to define us. I am of the tribe of the king of glory. I don't know what tribe you came from. That's what tribe you're from right now. The gang of Jesus. I, I did that for TC. Nobody else gets that, TC. But, but you, bro. That was for you, okay? But you've got loyalties, right? I mean, you're loyal on the street to a gang. You're defined by your connection with the gang. But when I got saved, I became a gang member of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is for all you white people. The redeemed political party. That's what political party you became a part of. You're part of the redeemed political party. I don't know what party you came from, but when you got saved, your politics got defined by a sovereign God who sits on the throne. He's a king. He's not a president. You don't elect him. There's a lot of difference in this political world. But that's the political association that most defines your life. The race of Christ the nationality of heaven, right? Your citizenship is not here. The army of the Lord of hosts. You want to fight? You want to shoot some weapons? Just remember who's on your side. The family of God. Right? That's, that's who we are when we come together as the body of Christ. Right? I mean, here, real question. What defines you more? The reality. What defines you more? You being white or black? Are you being a Christian? What defines you more? Well, I know you're white. I know you're black. I got eyes. I can see. What defines you more? You got more connection with the white community, the black community, the white way, the black way, than you do with being a Christian? How about this? What defines you more, being a man or being a woman or being a Christian? There's this thing in our world, male chauvinism, guys relate to guys, guys are loyal to guys, guy ideas, guy way of doing things, women, same thing true, loyal to women, give women a place, the voice of women, those men, there's this hostility, all right, are you, you more defined by being a woman or are you more defined by being a Christian, a human being made in the likeness and image of God, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what's, what's more defining for you? Are you more defined by being a Republican or a Democrat than you are by being a Christian? All right, we've got some issues on the table, right? We've got issues. We've got issues in our world. You've got presidential elections going on. You've got Democrat and Republican philosophies arguing about what needs to define this country's future. What kind of tax laws? What kind of health care? Hey, these are fine things to aim at. We've got gun laws now. We've got gun laws on the table now. All right. That's society. We're all living in the world together. What's, what's defining the way you have a discussion on those kinds of things? That you side with Fox News and Rush Limbaugh? 
or that you're a Christian from another planet. Listen, this is, I know this is true. I'm going to look at the ceiling while I do this. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. <laughs> but I know that all around the world that we live in, people do church every day. They gather around the Fox News gathering. They sit down with their bowl of whatever they eat. And they take notes and listen carefully because there will be a follow-up discussion on all these points tomorrow with guys at work. And I'm going to want to be able to argue my point as effectively as possible. So I'm, whether I'm writing it down, I'm taking mental notes, I can repeat everything that was said tomorrow. That, that's what church is supposed to be like. You go to church that way. You don't watch the news that way. Do you, I mean, do you recognize this, that some people are better disciples of Fox News than they are of Jesus Christ? They put more energy and effort to making sure they can argue points and line up an angle and defeat somebody else's viewpoint based on stuff about gun laws and politics. Listen. This is the most important meeting like that in a Christian's life. Not, not because uh, I'm a better communicator than O'Doul or whatever. His, what's his name? Uh, O'Reilly. <laughs> yeah, well, at least it's not alcoholic, all right? <laughs> Yeah, that's what I drink while I'm watching him. <laughs> hey, this is important because this is the only thing that's absolutely right, right here. It's the only thing absolutely right. I'm holding in my hands. Some political viewpoint's not absolutely right. It's some guy's opinion. And I'm not saying you're wrong to have opinions about this. As a matter of fact, I think Christians should participate in the public arena. I think there's a place for a Daniel to stand in the courts of the rulers and be influential in what he brought by way of wisdom. I think there's a place for Joseph to be in the life of uh, Pharaoh and shaping what was happening in humanity. That's a far cry from, from being a, a Limbaugh disciple and making sure you got all your angles and your points. Because somebody in here, in this gathering, that's defined by something bigger than political ideas is your brother and your sister. And when they pick the Bible up, they don't find an argument over candidates and sword laws. You know, they're just figuring, hey, that must not be as important as you sound like you're making it. This stuff is vitally important. This is eternally important. It doesn't mean other things aren't somewhat important. But you know, you can talk to some Christians who get more rankled, fierce, and fighting over that stuff than they do ever over the fact that the devil is taking people down left and right. That there are people all throughout the body of Christ that are taking a two-by-four to the head and getting shot by him. Listen, do something about his gun laws, flaming arrow laws. You want to work on some laws? Let's work on that. Because I guarantee you, apart from TC, most of us aren't going to get shot around here. <laughs> but I can tell you this, before you get out of this meeting, there'll be a dart in your backside. But listen, if you tune in every night and you let them tell you, this is important, this is important, the world will end unless the law. Hey, the world will end because this says it's going to end. You want some cool ideas? It's here. Take some time, make sure this is showing up on your radar, and be unified around this. Whether you got different opinions about how to do gun laws or not, you and I are together over some much more important stuff than that. All right, let me get to my next point here before I run out of time. The need for pastors to have a restrained focus and for other men to take up various responsibilities for church life. Okay, guys, I'm giving away why I'm skipping ahead a chapter in Acts chapter 6 and talking about the role of men stepping up in the life of the church. Because Friday night, 
we as men need a serious visit with God. We need a serious visit with God. And then we need to do something than have just one serious visit with God. And that's why a call to arms starts in January and it doesn't end until March. And we're hoping at that point it never ends. Because men need to take up a call to arms in the spirit. And that's what you see happening in this passage right here. The hour and the need of the church needs men. Not just any men. Men of good reputation. Men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Men who are full of wisdom. There comes a point where the ministry of God begins to bottleneck because too few hands are leading it and directing and caring for needs. So this, this is a message every one of us needs to hear. This is not just a man message, but I'm going to put some emphasis there because I, 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 think, I think what God is doing in our midst is awakening men in this hour. I'm not saying women can't be awakened, they shouldn't be awakened, they don't need to be. I'm just telling you it feels like in this church, God is saying, I'm calling out to men to take up a place that they need to take up in their lives. And in this church, what you see in this passage is a narrowing of responsibilities for one set of men and a broadening in another. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This whole passage exists because a problem came up in the church. This church is a machine. It's moving along, and the, and the gears are grinding to a halt right now. And Acts chapter 6 stops right here and says, we, we need to address something, and we need to do something differently than what we have been doing. And they step in and they do exactly that. And the verse, you can hear the engine go back up to speed. Here we go. And God began increasing and adding to their number daily. This is a problem. This is a problem today. Not just a problem back then. All right, here's a challenging thought for us. It's, it has to do with how we think about the church in your outline there. When we stop thinking or seeing the church as a building, a Sunday meeting, and a youth and children's program, we'll see that the church needs every member to be ministers. We stop seeing the church as a building, a Sunday meeting, and a children's program. That's what an American viewpoint says about the church. What's most important is where is that church? What's the, build, what's the building like? That's important to some people. What's the Sunday meeting like and what's the children's ministry like? I'm going to bring my children. I want to know what they're going to like it. Are they going to have fun when they come? That's what a huge amount of people looking for churches today are trying to figure out. But the church is much more than that. The church has got more to it. And, that, and what the church has to it has to do with this amazing care and connection and support that takes everybody doing their part to pull it off. Right? If we just went through what was featured in the church activity so far, from Acts 2 to Acts 6, featured. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. So there was relationship, there was connection, there was community and fellowship taking place. Yes, there were apostles preaching and there were preaching moments. But there was a few preaching and there was a bunch gathering people. So you, you can't even separate the preaching from the role of the many to gather people into those places. There was miraculous stuff taking place. There was an enormous amount of mutual care and friendship and support going on. Now, how much of that do you think was being taken care of by the apostles? Ten to 20,000 people. Probably not a lot. Not in give time to prayer and holding up people's lives in prayer and listening and discerning direction and preaching from God and preparing to speak on various issues to the church at that point, the church has to rally into this realm. People have to bring their lives into this realm. Right? The growing and changing church needs men who are of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. I mean, gosh, it doesn't just need men. You've got to have game. It needs men to show up with some game. 
It doesn't just say, hey, just get anybody to do this. It says, no, these men need to be a certain way. The, the, the work of God in their life right now needs to be in this form and fashion going on in them. You know, I'm, I do want to give a little shout out to a, just an awakening of God's. And this is why I say I, I believe God's doing something in men. Um, I think I've shared with you before, this whole series in Acts has been sitting on the incubating table for a couple of years the new normal and the study of the book of Acts, you know, just get that idea and tomorrow we'll preach on it. It's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And along the way, beginning to pray and hoping that there would be a groundswell of God's activity in the hearts of people to hear and receive, not just have something taught, but to hear and receive. And then men began coming out of places and communicating to us in a variety of ways of burdens that they're feeling and a desire for direction and and caring for others, and organizing activity. God began to birth that stuff. And so, I mean, here, in the last, this, this, is, this is not pastorally driven stuff. In the last few, last week or so, we had a gathering of 50-plus men on Friday morning a week or so ago, followed by uh, prayer on, on Sundays, followed by women gathering for prayer on a Saturday, followed by a gathering on Tuesday night last week of over 110 people came together for prayer. You know where that came from? It, it came from men in the church whose hearts were moved. And they, and they said, hey, can, could I gather some people for prayer? That's, that's, that's what needs to happen. We need to feel moved on to care for one another and to sacrifice for each other, pursue one another and protect each other in the body of Christ. This thought from John Stott, he says, a vital principle is illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today. It is that God calls all his people to ministry, that he calls different people to different ministries, and that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. It is vital for the health and growth of the church, that pastors and people in the local congregation learn this lesson. The apostles were not too busy for ministry, but preoccupied with the wrong ministry. So are many pastors. Instead of con concentrating on the ministry of the word, which will include preaching to the congregation, counseling individuals, training groups, they become overwhelmed with administration. The consequences are disastrous. The standards of preaching and teaching decline, since the pastor has little time to study or pray, and the lay people do not exercise their God-given roles. For both reasons, the congregation is inhibited from growing into maturity in Christ. All right. This is, this is true for all of us, men, women, young people, but I'm directing this at, at men. This was an hour in need in the church. I believe we live in an, an existing hour of need in our own church. For men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of the wisdom of the Word of God. That's the hour they existed in, and I believe it's the hour we exist in as well. We need men to feel the weight of that, to figure out how to bring their lives into that realm. And, and I can tell you right now, there's a reason why it's so hard to do that. This culture is at war with you ever being able to do what God's called you to do. In all kinds of realms, but I want to talk specifically about this realm. This is a realm for men to answer the call to the church. And as you know, look at our lives, look at my own life. We're, we're very, very busy, busy, busy people. Our lives are enormous. We have so much crammed and packed into them. We have the ability to overload with information. We have the ability to have more hobbies than we can shake a stick at. We're, we're former great athletes still trying to be great athletes. Uh, we, are, we love to hunt and fish and travel and, I mean, just add and add and add. And the American lifestyle affords us the ability to dabble in all of it. And so what we end up doing is doing those things and then squeezing something into the church. Come on, right? We live in a enormously materialistic culture. 
It lives and beats and hangs signs on billboards and advertises above your banners on your Google search. Everywhere, there's a message screaming out to you, you'll never be happy until you got newer, better, and more. Everywhere you encounter that. So what men begin to do is try to figure out, how do I live a lifestyle that will give me the opportunity to have newer, better, and more, newer, better, and more, newer, better, and more. That message is in us. And then we try and squeeze out some time for the church. And the church bottlenecks. And its well-being gets affected. Now let me say this. Not just the, the culture of the world, but the culture of the church, I think, has made it hard for men to answer the call to their role in the church. Now, how so? Well, because somewhere along the line, this thinking developed that men were called to be husbands and men are called to be fathers. Men are called to their home and their family. And then that was presented in such a way that it was almost like hostile. You know, that was to be protected. That's, I got to protect that role and, you know, the church and being involved in the church, being responsible for the church, getting involved in all that activity of the church. I, you know, I don't know right now. This is, this is where I'm at right now. This is where I, and almost there's an antagonism. Like, like somewhere in the Bible, as men, we were given the choice to say, hey, you know, right now I'm, I'm 100% family. And I'll let you know when I got a little 10%, 20% for church available. Where did we ever get the idea that we could take the church off the table in our lives? I mean, I don't think I'm reading anything into this passage. Where there is a, a Stephen and a Philip and a Nicanor, I'm pretty sure there's a Mrs. Stephen and a Mrs. Philip and a Mrs. Nicanor. And I'm pretty sure there's a Stephen Jr. and a Philip Jr. and a Nicanor Jr. I'm pretty sure these guys had families. But the church had a need. It needed those men to figure out how to do family and do church. Somewhere along the way, and this is an American idea, by the way. It's not a biblical idea. Somewhere along the way, we, we got the idea that if we just get family rights, then we will save the universe. If we just, get, if we just do family right in our culture, then everything will work out right. You know, when I open the Bible... I do find families, but I find God saying, if we just do church right, I'll turn this world upside down. That's what I find in the Bible. Then you might, you might be thinking the gates of hell are trying to prevail against your family, but that's not what that Bible verse says, is it? The gates of hell are trying to prevail against the church. Your family's in the church. Your family's on this giant ark of a vessel that God is designed to take us through all the way to eternity to stand before him in glory. And, and, and my family operates in cabin number 3602. That's where we live on this giant vessel called the church. And, and sure, I, I should have a responsible thought in my head that I need my cabin to stay tight and tidy. I need, to, I need to put my attention there, and my cabin needs to stay tight and tidy. But, but gentlemen, here's what's happening. The church is getting bombarded. The enemy is blowing holes in the church left and right. And guess what's going to happen to your family when the church sinks? They're going to go right down with it. Because there's no such thing as a Christian family apart from the church. So I don't get to just hang out in deck number 3602 because God knows I got enough going on in room 3602. And maybe you feel that way also. But I don't get to not notice that the church just took a blow. It just took a shot. Something just came over the wall and blew up half the deck. And I better get up there and man a weapon. I better get up there and fight on behalf of the church because in fighting for the church, I'm fighting for my family. Listen, men, there's, there's, some, there's some teaching out there about being men. It needs to get fixed. The idea that me as a man and me and my household, that's all the man they need. That's it right here. I'm the man. Prophet, priest, and king. Well, no, I'm dad. I'm dad. That's who I am. I'm called to a role. I'm not a prophet, priest, and king. 
prophet, priests, and kings are prophet, priests, and kings. Well, I'm called to shepherd my, my family. Yes, I am. I am. And my family's called to have a pastor in their life. I, well, I was going to say, I'm not their pastor. Well, I am their pastor, but that's weird. Uh, you know, but hey, husbands and fathers, you're not your wife's pastor. You're her husband. And you do a lot of stuff that looks like care, and that's what pastors do. You're not your child's pastor. You're their parent. You you don't have permission to let the church sink and have wonderful families. At some point, listen, this is not, now Keith, are you twisting this message up? No, no. I I don't see the apostles saying, hey, whoa, time out, time out. Let's huddle all the families up. Let's get the family together here. Family's got to get some family stuff right. I see them getting everybody together and saying, hey, guys, the church needs you men to step up. The church needs that. This is a message about what the church needs. Now, yes, it will serve your family. Yes, it will. This community of life where our children get to watch real-life Christianity lived out, people sacrificing for each other, people selling their stuff to give it to that person over there, they'll learn value system. They'll learn godliness. They'll learn how important the mission of the gospel is as they watch people live sacrificially for it. And we play a role in that. So here's here's where I want to stop. Go ahead, Eric, you can go ahead and come up. All right, man, we're going to live in this call Friday night and into the next couple of months here and into March of a call to arms. Every man needs to hear a call to take up weapons. There's a war to be fought. I know we're all busy. We've all got tons of stuff happening in our lives. But the church needs men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of the wisdom of God to step forward in this hour. It needs men. It needs men who are available. And whatever that's going to mean, guys, I just trust that as we gather and we get around God, God will look at our lives with all of its busyness and all of its pursuits, all the good things that are there, good things, a lot of good things in our lives. And we'll be able to connect with us that there's, there's a reality here in the church that men have got to respond to. Now, you understand, I'm, I'm not, the ladies right now are elbowing husbands, I guess. The principle applies to everybody. Nobody who is part of the church doesn't have a responsibility for the church. Nobody. So it's not just a matter of, hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. This is what I'm doing right now. All right, listen. Not everybody will have the same type of responsibility in the church. But everybody's got a responsibility in the church. Everybody does. This is a list of seven. But everybody's got a role to play. Because even those seven, I guarantee you, they're not the ones selling their properties and giving it to those guys. Those seven, you're going to fund everything seven? Wasn't their role. Other people were playing that role. Other people out of, you know, tens and 20,000. How did they even know there was a need? Because people were playing the role. They were involved in each other's lives. They knew that this person here can't return from where they came from. And they don't have any money. They got no way of making it, but they've come to know the Lord in these last couple of months where the Spirit of God has been outpoured. And and we got to do something for that person. How did that even get known? Because somebody cared for that person and walked with them. And figured out ways to get involved in their life and lighten the load and be something to them. That's, That's the church. When that's normal in the church... It caught people's attention then. It'll catch people's attention today. It's why I think we see the word of God continue to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God's move continued on. Because in this instance, seven men stepped forward and said, we will take on that responsibility. That's what God's calling us to. Let's let's stand up together.
Father, in, in, in a very realistic way, Lord, we are, we are here gathered with understanding and knowledge of your great salvation. Because men like Stephen and Philip and Nicanor and Prochorus step forward in Acts chapter 6 and then names that we don't know step forward in Acts chapter 8 or 10 or 12 or, or 200 years ago in a church or 1,000 years ago in some other church. Lord, men stepped forward and the body ministered the way it was called to and the gospel continued. It continued its march. It continued its increase. It continued to conquer lives and win the lost. Oh, Lord, how valuable. How valuable is that? How valuable is it to me as an individual in the church to see that there comes a day in the complexity of the life of the church that I need to make my contribution. I need to play a role. I need to make a sacrifice. I need to serve. I need to have a vision for being involved. Lord, this morning, would you help us, Lord? We're busy and we're in noisy lives. But Lord, I don't know what Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, 12, 14, I don't know what the rest of the book would have looked like if the apostles had said it is not good that we should give our attention to this and no one was available. I thank you that that's not how the book records the story. Lord, I pray that as you develop and lead us and compel us, Lord, we would feel your call. We would take up the challenge. Lord, I pray that we would begin as men by showing up here Friday night, saying, God, I don't even, I don't even know all that you got in mind for me. <laughs> From what Keith said, it sounds pretty painful. <laughs> but I'm here. I'm here because this church, it's the ark I'm a part of. It's the ship I'm on. It's the, it's the only one that goes on to glory. It's the only ride I can get. And I'm not just here to pop out on the other side. I'm here to get to the other side. I'm here to get others to the other side. I'm here to fight and take up weapons. I'm here to be who you call me to be. God, I'm here so that what can be said of me is I'm a man of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. That's the man I want to be. So God, I pray you'd call us together. You'd bring us together Friday night. And you'd begin a work in our lives so deep, so lasting, so effective. Lord, that generations would be able to talk about what was begun by God in our hearts has reverberated to one generation after another. That's what we're asking for. Father, come reveal the love that you freely given us. Poured from Calvary like a flood, we look to you. Spirit, move and shine your light. Change our hearts and fill our minds. With the radiance of Christ, we look to you. We look to you. For when you move, our lives are changed. We know a taste of heaven here. We're crying out for more of you. Lord, come and move. Father, you know all our needs. Long before we even speak But your heart is what we seek We look to you Let's come and build your church 
that your gospel fill the earth till the day that you return we look to you we look to you when you move our lives are changed we know what taste of heaven here we're crying out for more of you Lord, come and move. For when you move, our lives are changed. We know what taste of heaven here. We're crying out for more of you. Lord, come and move. So, verse 2 again, Father. Father, you know all our needs long before we even speak. But your heart is what we seek. We look to you. Jesus, come and build your church. Gospel fit through us, Lord, till the day that you return. We look to you. We look to you. Because when you move, our lives are changed. We know what taste of heaven here. We're crying out for more of you. Lord, come and move. When you move, our lives are changed. Know a taste of heaven here. 